0: go banana slugs best mascot best mascot
1: very not very ferocious not good for sports but a good mascot overall why
0: do you got to be ferocious in sports welcome to the podcast first episode and you've got myself sean and my co-host here allison hello hello and so today we're going to start off talking a little bit about something that both Alice and I have worked on a bit in the past with the Students and Trainees Subcommittee and Working Group on Non Clinical Medical Physics. But we really focused on these issues while we were going through the residency transition for the ABR residency requirement. The thing that spurred this conversation is the March 2019 newsletter article from the WAPM on the Education Council reports from Jim Dobbins, where they discuss the CAMPEP accredited residency programs reaching the desired goal of 175 residency slots per year. We're going to talk a little bit about the background of where that number came from. We're going to talk about what those programs are doing and whether or not that number is sufficient to meet not only the needs of graduating medical physics Uh, students, but as well the number of jobs that are being posted by medical physics institutions. So Allison, having recently read this newsletter article, do you want to sum it up?
2: Uh, So I think you pretty much already have. Back in 2010, there was a model of estimated new jobs that would be posted per year. They estimated that in 2030, there would be about 190 residency spots needed, about 30 imaging residency spots And basically, if the number of residency programs did not increase, there would be expected shortages of medical physicists who were trained in as soon as 2017, which has come in fast. So as of this year, we have 175 slots approximate. There are actually about 170 to 180 slots per year, and that does not include the five DMP programs that have also been created.
0: So let's talk about that number 175. And like you said, it came from this model that was derived from the School of Public Health in Albany, New York. They did a lot of looking into what the baseline parameters were for the climate of medical physics at the time. They looked at the number of new hires on average. They looked at generally the distribution of people within the medical physics community. So Are they in their early career, meaning less than five years' experience as a medical physicist, or in their mid-career, so five to 20, or their late career, greater than 20 years' experience in medical physics? And they found a pretty, yeah, not interesting distribution per se, but there's roughly equal numbers of early and late-career medical physicists, and then about five times as many mid-career medical physicists. And from there, they went about running various supply and demand scenarios, assuming different amounts of supply coming in from residency programs, given that programs would preferentially hire certified physicists, ABR certified physicists, not ABMP. For radiation oncology, they tied these numbers to the national cancer incidents. And then they divided that number in half and did a couple other small adjustments to that. But effectively, it's tied to the cancer incidents for the normal American. And that's where this number eventually came from. And most of it applies to radiation oncology physicists, but they did also run separate scenarios for radiology and diagnostic physicists. But their estimates were tied only to population. They had no tie to what it was that radiologists and diagnostic physicists deal with, particularly the number of different imaging modalities and the number of different diagnostic imaging scans being performed on an annual basis in the United States. So... I think there's a little bit to talk about with what that model came up with. Any ideas, Allison, as to whether or not you feel confident in the 175 number?
2: Sure. So first of all, it seems like in the next 10 years, we're going to get very quickly from 175 residency slots to 190 or more. I'm not sure about the timing of the accrual of these residency slots. And furthermore, I think that the role that radiation therapy is playing in cancer treatment is changing. So at one point in time, radiation therapy was only for either primary cancer sites or palliative care if you had metastatic cancer, but increasingly with better diagnostic imaging and abilities to kind of see these oligometastatic cases where patients have a very small number of metastatic cases where they think that they can still cure Radiation therapy is becoming a viable treatment option, which for one thing, these patients have more than one treatment sites, which means a longer time that they're being treated, but it's just a more complicated scenario. And so that's something that we're just not considering in these models.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's a great point. I think more and more we're seeing cancer as a chronic condition in the United States and radiation therapy is definitely a part of the, the toolkit that we're bringing to bear on that. I don't know if that's necessarily changing the number of physics positions available but i do think that it's increasing a lot of the annual throughput on the ct scanners and so on and whether or not we're really accounting for that appropriately is a bit of an open question. One, one statistic I found kind of interesting in the model when they discussed how they came up with the supply and demand is they talked about on average for every 300 patients in a clinic, you get about one medical physicist, one full-time medical physicist on the radiation oncology side. And I'm going to just also apologize here and say that I did read a lot about the diagnostic physics side, but I'm not going to discuss as much of that, even though there's, there's quite a bit to, to discuss, mostly because my background is in therapy. So if you have 300 patients, They don't really go on to describe whether or not those 300 patients are in unique individual patients. Are they 300 treatment sites, 300 different simulations? Obviously, those are nuances that are a bit lost on somebody who's coming in from outside the field. But when you're making a case to an administrator saying, hey, I need another FTE here because I'm treating from 7 a.m. or 7.30 a.m. and going until 7 or 8 at night, uh, we need to have full-time coverage. We need to be able to do QA after hours. We need to be able to do our chart checks. Um, Keep up with the different types of treatments that we're bringing to to the fore. We're seeing a resurgence in the use of brachytherapy in a few different treatment sites with HDR prostate and GYN. I think that there's a bit of back and forth that we need to account for some wiggle room. We can't just say we got to 175, which this model said that we should and mission accomplished. And I think that that's a part of the reason that I found this article so interesting. Yes, it's a big landmark, but should we let our foot off the gas? I definitely don't think that we should.
2: And one thing I think you're not quite saying, but back in 2010, I think that the treatment plans that we were planning, the QA was a lot simpler than it is today. It's been a few years since I've done any sort of radiation therapy. But I remember, you know, the way that you do your QA, of course, is treatment dependent. And I think that, you know, more complicated IMRT and stuff like that would be a more complicated QA that would take longer. Is that true?
0: Well, yeah. I mean, it's kind of got both sides of it. As the treatment gets more complicated, the checks that you do on that treatment become more intricate as well, or at least more involved. But as we've also seen the medical device industry come in and produce some fantastic products, whether it be uh, 3D dosimeter phantoms that can utilize large arrays of detectors, or if it's vendor provided portal dosimetry solutions, or even third party software checks where the the crunch on the amount of time used for QA has resulted in these new products being produced, you see that, that sort of give and take where we saw a ballooning on the, the demand for physics time. And because of those devices and because of those new technologies and techniques, we can mitigate some of that by adopting that. That also comes with increased cost. So two things to balance out is, is it worth to spend money on another medical physicist or do we wanna buy three or four of these devices to make sure that we can make do with the number of physicists that we have? I'm kind of curious for you. I mean, Allison, your background is in pet tracers, in radiology and radiomics. I know you may not want to go to a clinic, but do you think that we have an appropriate supply of diagnostic physicists? To me, it seems like the diagnostic physics work being done is on the scale of like what IBM's Watson is doing, where we're trying to figure out if we can give a computer an MRI or a PET or all these different multimodality images and say, can you tell me what's going on here? And do you really think that we've got enough people going into this field as it is right now to take on those types of challenges?
2: From my understanding, and I'm certainly not an expert in this, is that the role of the diagnostic physicist is purely scanner QA, and that they really aren't interacting in a meaningful way with the radiology departments in order to really set up these quantitative systems that we need in order to perform, you know, holistic quantitative image analysis that, you know, as a researcher, I would ideally want to be implemented. But at least go ahead and say what you want to say, Sean.
0: I'm I'm very sorry. I'm very sorry. <laughs> So I thought the same thing until I met our diagnostic physics department at SUNY Upstate. And they are doing things like feeding MRIs into neural networks for specifically, right now they're working on glioblastoma versus radionecrosis, which is, you know, okay, maybe not a fair comparison. They're working on something that's more experimental than directly clinical applicable. It's very rare that those two things become a differential recurrent glioblastoma versus radionecrosis. Now that's a different thing, but they've done quite a bit. And I, from what I understand it, a lot of the major radiology centers, a lot of these large centers, those types of projects are not uncommon. They have quite a few neural net things. And even in the radiation therapy side, we see a lot of people starting to apply these same types of concepts. So I wouldn't count our diagnostic physics colleagues out in terms of the research that they're trying to perform, even if they are mostly clinical.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, I think I was thinking more of um, physicists who have to cover a large number of sites and therefore just don't have any sort of research time. Of course, if you're at a larger research university and you only have to account for one or two sites, you're going to have more research time. And then, of course, those kinds of projects will be more possible.
0: So then in the end, do you think that the number of people coming into the field is appropriate to that goal? Or do you think that it's something that we still need to strive to attain?
2: I think either one of two things needs to happen. Either more people need to come in or more training on how to implement effective and efficient sorts of programs like these needs to be a larger emphasis of the training so that even if you are covering, say, you know, five hospitals, you can still start to implement these sorts of programs. Okay. But if not more people, then definitely a change in training or modification.
0: What, you don't want to just learn about filtered back projection all day?
2: Okay, that was a great undergrad research project.
0: (laughs) I still don't really understand it, I have to admit. So we've talked a a little bit about this model and we've we've maybe talked a bit about what their assumptions were. I want to kind of pivot and transition to talking about what the the recent camp pep numbers are as well as the medvis match statistics because i think that those are going to tell a little bit different story again going back to this this claim of okay we're at 175 we met this goal which is excellent one of the things that we see when we go through the MEDFIS match, so we we pulled up the 2018 match statistics. We found that 43% of the participants failed to match, and that's with them filling nearly 90% of the possible residency program availabilities. So we've got a large number of students coming in and trying to get a residency spot, and they're just not finding it. It doesn't seem to be.
2: Right, and then if we look at the statistics, coming from graduate programs saying where their students are ending up. We see that 100% of PhD students who apply for residency get it. So all those people who aren't matching are primarily master's students.
0: Yeah. No. Exactly. And so, even comparing these numbers, right? So, numbers that are quoted in this report it says that fifty-two PhD candidates, maybe fifty-one, because they only have fifty-one applying to residency. Fifty-two candidates got into residency for, with a PhD. And 54 master's students got into a residency. So, if you add those up, that's 106. The, the MedFids match said they placed 116 people total. So, the, they don't have the full picture exactly. But you're 100% right that what they do have is that of those 51 or 52 PhD students who applied, all of them matched or all of them got a residency or matriculated to a residency, whereas you had 79 master students applying, but 54 of them got in. So, you've got a 60% shot if you're a master student. And of course, you know, they say that 88 participants did not match. So, you know, 204 people applied to residencies compared to the CAMPEP statistics, which say it was like 123. So, they're only capturing about 60% of that population.
2: And you have to wonder, at least a little bit, if some of those people aren't coming from CAMP-UP programs. Uh, For instance, I don't think we're capturing the people who got the certificates, and then also just people who didn't do a CAMP-UP accredited program, but then went ahead and tried to apply for the match.
0: Or even people who were delayed. So in the CAMP-UP statistics, they designate the different areas that you go to, uh, position in industry, position in government, going for another degree, if you got into residency, what type of residency. One of the things they say and they highlight is that junior medical physicist positions, about 10% of outgoing graduates go into one of those, at least in 2017. But if you look back a little ways, back in 2013, 2014, before the requirement came in as as heavily as it is now, it wasn't as stringent back then, 30% of people were going into those positions when 2015 hit, you still had 13%. 2016, nearly 20% of people going into those positions. So all those people may not have been able to match at that point when you had that shortage of residency positions. And so you may be seeing a lot of those people trying to go and enter into the match program, not coming directly from graduate school. There's, I would be willing to bet that there's still a fair number of physicists out there trying to get into a residency spot because right now they're doing a, either a junior physicist position type thing or they're a physics assistant and are just being worked to the bone without getting a lot of the recognition and due that they should have attained.
2: Speaking of those junior physicist positions, in 2017 there were 10 DMP graduates. And nine of the ten after you know they attained that residency that we're all, you know, trying to get into, nine of the ten then took junior physicist jobs rather than full physicist jobs that I feel like most residency graduates would take. And The final one out of the 10 was still seeking a position at the time of the
0: report. I'm curious then, this junior medical physics position, does that mean that you are not a full-time physicist? Your title doesn't say therapeutic medical physicist or whatever, you know, whatever the equivalent would be, diagnostic medical physicist. Or does that mean physics assistant? Because I think that that gradation there is a little bit subtle, but very important. Because if you're a physics assistant, you're probably not getting full benefits. You're probably not considered for faculty positions. You're probably not given time to do research. You're probably, you know, not that everybody is given time to do all these things. But those are considerations that when you're applying for, hey, i I want the the full-time radiation oncology physicist position here. Can I get one protected afternoon a week to sit down and go over a QI project or a research interest of mine or just to keep up on the new MPPGs that are coming out that I need to adapt to and keep up to date with? That's a lot stronger position to be in than when you're the physics assistant who somebody else is going to tell you what to do. Somebody else is going to have to sign off on your work. Somebody else is going to have to keep an eye on what you're doing all day long. And they get your work for cheap for less than half the cost of a full-time physicist. So maybe that's something that CAMPEP can do a better job of trying to find the gradation in. It needs to be a little bit more granular what their survey is looking for.
2: Agreed. Yeah, I assumed that it was more of a physics assistant's job, but it's possible that they just weren't a senior physicist sort of position.
0: Yeah, I think the DMP statistic there where it says junior MP position, I I think that to me says that they're they're not making that differentiation because I don't see somebody coming out with a DMP taking a physics assistant position especially after you've paid, what, $160,000 to get this degree. (laughs) Oh, God, that's a sad number to say out loud.
2: So speaking of that, earlier this week on April 1st, there was, through the Medical Physics listserv, an email that went out encouraging people to apply for a residency position that had a substantial tuition fee and no salary attached to it, in my experience, is very rare for a non-DMP residency.
0: Yeah, yeah. So this came out, I think actually it came out on April 2nd, the uh, CAMPEP accredited, which is good, radiotherapy physics residency at Genesis Healthcare, a partner of San Diego State University. And yeah, you required to have either an MS or PhD in medical physics from a CAMPEP accredited graduate program or a postgraduate certificate, but no, uh, no financial support you have to pay your own tuition you have to pay your own room and board we're not going to pay you for the time you put in you got to pay to go to a pro- go to a meeting every year i ugh, ugh, i really don't know how that's allowed to me that seems really wrong because every other uh, residency physics position comes with a salary i mean you don't have to take out a loan to go through this extra two year training process now
2: Right, and the you know the obvious comparison is to a DMP, but at least with the DMP you have got kind of a guaranteed residency spot after you finish your masters. Yeah, so you just yeah. Don't see that benefit here.
0: Exactly. I mean, even one of the things that you know for the DMP, if you're a student, I mean, to, I think what this really shows is the disadvantage you have when you're coming in as somebody who's trying to find that next level. If you are not absolute cream of the crop, you know, top 50%, you might be stuck at a spot like this where you're going to have to pay. I think one of our one of our co-contributors, uh, Andrea Herrick, she went through and found out the actual cost of the residency training program that was advertised on the MedFizz listserv. And so, for the two-year cost, tuition and fees thirty one and a half thousand dollars. Off campus room and board. That may be a little variable, but twenty five and a half thousand dollars. So we're up to what is that? My mental math is a little slow today. Fifty four grand. Four thousand dollars for one national conference per year. So two thousand per year. So now we're up to fifty eight. And then books and supplies, they're estimating thirty seven hundred dollars. So you're gonna pay an extra sixty thousand dollars to go to residency, whereas somebody who goes to a residency that's paid doesn't have any of those costs. Well, they have room and board, so maybe we can deduct that. So you're going to pay $35,000 more than somebody who goes to a paid residency and you're going to miss out on that income. I don't know if they even give you benefits, so do you have health insurance while you're doing this? I mean, that's yeah, I I hope so. I I don't see any mention of it on this. You know, so Ah, it, I really think that this is a bit criminal to, to tell somebody like, okay, well, you didn't match. You can go through a residency, but you're going to have to pay. This is, this is a whole new way to take advantage of people who are in a vulnerable position where you've put in two to six years in a graduate program. And now they're saying, okay, pay up again so that we can continue to move you along in this process. I don't know.
2: I could see some people thinking it's worth it. You know, 97% of residency graduates do get a job within three months of graduating. It's that step that you have to take in order to be out in the workforce.
0: Yeah, I guess that's true. Then again, I mean, there is that 3%, which means that it's three or four individuals a year who are not getting it. If you're coming from a program like this, you know, again, it's the same thing with, but CAMPEP has a statement on degree mills they they don't name anybody but they'd say hey look if you're not matching people if you're not putting them into residency programs you really have to step back and evaluate what you're doing the academic programs have no incentive to do that they have no incentive to cut off their own you know cut off their nose despite their face right that's what pays the bills the same thing with this that you know if those students come out and they get a job excellent great for them that's what we want to see But if you come out of a program like this with all that extra debt, you know, by the time you've gone through college, uh, graduate work, and then a two-year residency program, you could be anywhere from 26 to 32. And if you come out at, you know, say at the upper end of that in your early 30s, and you've got, let's say, about 100 grand in student loans, and you're not able to find a job in the field you trained for, I really don't think that that's right. I know I, it's not it's not Camp Hep's job to regulate that but
2: so let's shift gears a little bit and I'm curious to know your thoughts on do you think we're producing the right number of residents a year so back in 2014 there was a series of articles published called the meaning of the master's degree and they estimate that only about 150 to 175 radiation therapy physics jobs are created a year And therefore, we're creating too many graduates. But from our discussion so far, I think we're really saying that there aren't enough residency positions, even to this day, despite APM potentially thinking otherwise.
0: Well, yeah, so so, uh, I think that there are two ways that you can look at this problem. You can look at this as us trying to fill a residency spot for every graduate or create a residency spot for every graduate coming out, which is not realistic, I don't believe, because you've got on the order of 300 graduates every year. That seems to be pretty steady over the last five years per camp. Up. But I, where I work right now, we've had a position open for, it's been off and on for about two years. We're looking to hire somebody who is coming out of a residency, they've got a good foundation behind them, and they've got a lot of energy to come in and help us out. We're working with five physicists right now, one of them who is primarily a gamma knife physicist, covering about 1,800 patients a year. So, you know, we need somebody who's going to come in and, and really feel motivated, want to be part of the team, and we're not able to attract them. Um, we've interviewed quite a few people, and I think that, you know, it's it's one of these, it's a challenge. Am I saying that's because that we don't have enough resident graduates? Yeah, in some way, I think I think it is. I think that we're not in a spot where a resident is kind of looking for the job. What it is is a resident is looking for the absolute best job and they're, they're it's a very competitive market for them. So, you know, right now where I work, it's a state institution. So the upfront offer doesn't initially seem, it's not bad at all, but it's not what a private clinic can offer. However, the experience you can get there and the, the range of treatments that we do and the amount of, of knowledge as well as, I mean, the state benefit packages are awesome. Like these types of things, it's hard to make the case to say that with those extra competitive advantages, if we're not able to fill a position in two years, are we really producing enough people to come out and satisfy the, the demand of the market? I can only imagine what it's like at the VA where it's even more constrained. I mean, I was looking at a VA job posting the other day and they're saying that, you know, to work in a center like Boston where their cost of living is Boku bucks, you're only getting about 150 grand a year for somebody with, you know, five to 10 years experience. Like, ah. That's a, I mean, that's a, that's a tough hit to ask somebody who's fully board certified with that level of experience who, according to the recent salary surveys, you're talking 180 to 200, you know, so they're not able to fill their positions. We're definitely very competitive with that level for us not to be able to fill that to me says, okay, well, maybe the market has more room for us to provide more employees into it
2: right and i should mention that in that document that i was referencing they were discussing part of the reason why they thought that the field was oversaturated was because they could fill positions so quickly
0: well i mean i think that's a misunderstanding of supply and demand if you are producing so much of something and you run out of it in three months and then you've got to wait another nine months for you to make more i'm not suggesting that every resident wait nine months or even that we really want any of them to but it's one of these things where, yes, they spend a little bit of time before they graduate to go ahead and apply and search, but it's such a huge number who are looking for that job. You know, it seems like there's more buffer there for them to be able to produce more graduates, more residency graduates. So, Allison, have you ever talked to a medical student or a doctor, like a, an attending, who uh, have they they ever seemed confused to you about this whole MedFiz match, the way we do it?
2: Well, I've never talked to someone about it, no. Is it different in the way that the medical match works?
0: Well, so the MedFiz match works the same, but the number of medical school slots is tuned to the number of residency positions available. And the residency positions available is tuned to the number of job postings that they get every year. It's, so it's, it's all it's like a very well-oiled machine. I'm not saying it's perfect, because sometimes they misjudge what's going on. Like this past year, radiation oncology, for example, many programs failed to fill their their positions just because students are more interested in immunology, or they're more interested in hemonc, or maybe even not even oncology at this moment. They could be looking into other different fields that are more attractive. But that whole feedback comes down the, the line. And I, while I think CAMPEP is trying to cater towards that. I don't see them making that an overt, this is the goal. We're trying to match this number to this number. And once we hit that match, that's it. It seems to me that what we are seeing is, okay, well, if you meet baseline qualification one, two, or three, like you get, you get accredited, you can get accredited to as many as you want to have. If you're a graduate program, there's no consideration for how many of these students we're going to produce because that's not our job. So I don't know it, I I find it kind of interesting. I'm kind of curious as to what your thoughts are on it because you're looking at a totally different aspect of what you can do when you come out of a program with a graduate degree in medical physics, right? That's sort of your goal. So what do you think about that? What do you think about having tuned admissions variables?
2: Right. So it's really difficult. So for the listeners' background, I do not want to do a residency position. I'm interested in either staying in academia, purely academia, no clinical responsibilities, or even going into industry. And so there are some people like me who go into medical physics who want to answer these clinical problems that you know, a medical physicist is faced with, but doesn't necessarily want to be that clinical physicist. And so... Up to this point, Camp Ep's job has been to purely worry about those clinical physicists. And so while they might urge or suggest programs to not produce more physicists than will get residency positions, there are people like me who don't want to do a residency position. And so it makes the whole, I guess, equation of how many students should we admit so much tougher. And my lab in particular tends to take people who don't want to do a residency, don't want to go into clinic. And certainly a lot of students that we take, myself included, say in the beginning, you know, I want to do a residency, I want to work in the clinic, I want to do research, but I feel like I need that clinical experience to do meaningful research. But then while they're, you know, for instance, in our lab, they change their mind, you know, they just want to go into research after it. And that makes, you know, especially if you're a PhD student, a lot can change in four the seven years that it takes you to get a PhD. And so if you want to admit students who only want to do clinic or only want to do non-clinical careers, that's got to be nearly impossible. At least with medicine, everyone's going to go on to residency or you're going to do an MD-PhD. And I feel like that really constrains the question in a way that our field's just not constrained.
0: Yeah, no, I, I think that was really well said. Excellent. So do you have any other final thoughts on this uh, this subject of residencies and...
2: So one more statistic that I ran across while looking into some of these different sources, and this is from the CAMPEC report, is that 62% of master's students are male. But then that number actually drops for PhD and for DNP to 58%. That's not a huge drop, but I really expected it to be the opposite. And I'm very encouraged that it's not.
0: Yeah. Actually, if you look back to 2013 on that same report, the the 2018 report for the 2017 graduating class, it was the opposite for master's students, 64%. And then for PhD, the number of male students was 71%. So there's been a, I'm not going to say a, a great progress there. I, I think that instead what it's been is just the culmination of a lot of work from a lot of people and a lot of recognition. So that's An excellent trend in our community, something that we need to see a little more of. Well, I I mean, I've said way too much during this time. I think we've got to the point of our fledgling podcast where we open the floor up to uh, we have two other hosts of the podcast who will be contributing on various episodes as we go forward. Dr. Nicholas Sperling and Andrea Herrick, um, both out of Ohio. So guys, now that you've listened to us ramble on about this, this topic that we've both researched for quite a while, do you guys have any thoughts to add into the conversation?
3: So we did have some interesting things that we thought of while listening to you guys discuss. One thing that I had noticed is that the match result statistics are available for 2019. They do not change the story very much at all. The 2019 results pretty much follow the 2018 results as well, with 273 applicants who had registered for the match and 65 of whom didn't submit ranks and 131 of whom actually were successfully matched into a program.
0: Okay, so we've got about the same proportions as we're going forward of the people who are trying to get in and and knocking at the door and not quite able to. Nick, since you got those statistics up in front of you, what proportion of positions were unfilled by the match process?
3: Uh, 7% were unfilled. Um, that's 7% of the positions and programs. But they put a note that two positions in two programs did not submit any ranks, uh, and those were included in the 7%. So the, it looks like about five positions did not get filled.
0: So, Andre, did you have any thoughts while you were uh, going through this? I know that you went through all this.
3: Oh, I had,
1: I had a few. So one of the things I really found interesting is a lot of these workforce studies were done in 2010. And if you look at the history of what was going on in 2010, which I kind of know a little bit more about because that was actually the year I graduated, the market was horrible. There was the economic downturn and a lot of hospitals were just not hiring. So I think what might have been happening is you had the private hospitals, which is where I work, and the clinical, like the community hospitals, things like that maybe weren't hiring. And the places that were hiring were more of like academic centers and places that would be more likely to hire PhDs. So some of that research, I would be kind of curious if we redid this workforce study, which I know it was a huge project, if anything would change. And if you're looking at the demand for medical physicists, is that significantly different than it was in 2010? And I would probably argue that it probably is. And the workforce study actually mentions that presently about 200 to 250 new medical physicists enter the workforce each year. So if you're looking at that number, we're short of that with our current residency positions. And I I think that that's probably likely to keep... Changing in the future, especially 2010, we didn't have as much gating going on. We didn't have as many breath holds going on. We didn't have as much svrt SRS, and all of those things might not require after hours physics support, but they certainly require during clinic hours physics support, which increases the demand for needing a clinical physicist there. So, I think those are all interesting things to maybe think about a little more.
0: That I mean, that's that's an excellent point. I mean. For for one thing, when you say that, you know, all these workforce studies happened in 2010, this was a one-time event as far as the AAPM was concerned. I do know, uh, because one of the, my favorite things in the morning when I wake up and I want to like, eh, I don't want to get in my car yet to go to work. I read the medical physics listserv digests. And so I read these and sometimes they're ridiculous, but sometimes they they have these jewels in them. And I know that uh, Scott Dubé, one of the members at large in the AAPM, is petitioning to try and get another workforce survey done. And I fully support that. I think that you're 100% right that the state of the market in 2010 is not reflective of where we are now. As well, a great point that you made that the rapid advancement of technology, I mean, we're only going to see technology continue to grow in what we do. And to see physicians bumble their way through some of these things from time to time without reaching out for guidance or without having a properly commissioned system can make somebody blanch pretty quickly when you see when you watch them try and decide a for example a respiratory gait on a patient who coughed in the middle of a 4D scan and they're making a treatment decision off that piece of information without asking why does this look like this? You know, that, that type of thing is is something that I think we really need to be on the lookout for, and that's most of why the clinical physicist is there, is to be the technical expert, to be the person who they can turn to and we can explain what's going on and make recommendations that will help them provide better care for patients.
1: As a side note to that, I just want to mention one of the concerns I've read in a couple reports when they're talking about the workforce, if you're looking at what happens when we don't have enough physicists to cover the clinical need, what hospitals are probably going to look to do is have someone that's not a medical physicist who's maybe a little less qualified take some of those projects away. So it'd be delegating some of those tasks to someone less qualified. And then your physicist becomes less present in the clinic. And some of those issues, like what you talked about, those clinical decisions, we're not there to see. If you're not there to see it, they ask someone else, that scares me a little. So I think that there should be more interest in definitely making sure that we have enough physicists to fit the need. Because if we don't, someone else is going to do it.
3: Yeah. To, to me, this sort of ties into the Medical Physics 3.0 idea of that we need to present to everyone involved what it is that we bring to the clinic and why we're there in the first place. Because without us being there, a lot of dangerous things can happen. And the fact that we have allowed this bottleneck to prevent filling these positions and we have allowed administrators to prevent us from growing the number of positions when the workload has grown, has created a situation where we're now fighting to keep even the positions that we have and having our leadership say that we have enough positions and we have enough people coming into those positions. And that's, I think, one of the things that Medical Physics 3.0 is trying to fight against, which that's a whole other discussion, but that, that idea that We need to remind people why we're here.
1: I think that would be an interesting thing. Maybe if somebody had some insight, someone that had recently hired somebody, maybe go onto our Reddit page or something and maybe comment on what their experience was. Did you get enough applicants? Did you get quality applicants? I would love to hear from people who have hired recently because I'd be really interested. I think those are the people that would give us kind of an early warning sign of maybe we have enough, maybe we don't. I'd love to hear some experiences from people.
0: But yeah, sorry. So the Reddit page is Radium Podcast. It's uh, Reddit dot com slash r slash Radium Podcast. All one word. I think that's going to be tremendous feedback as well as people who've gone through the match recently. I know that there is already a medphys subreddit, but come on over and just talk a little bit about what your your recent hiring experiences have been. I know for for my institution right now, we've got some good applicants. We've got some applicants who maybe we're not we're not 100% sure on, but it, we've we've definitely gone through and brought out quite a few people to interview and a lot of them are very impressive. Just they get so many different offers that they're choosing between three or four different spots that they want to go to so
3: so i wanted to go back to a couple of other points the statement of how many openings there are for physicists every year uh was 170 openings per year.
0: So that that was estimated by the workforce survey is that it's between 170 to 200, but that is combined with both radiation therapy physics and diagnostic imaging physics. That does not include non-clinical positions. Those are purely clinical board-certified positions.
3: Yeah, uh, but that does not speak to how many we think that we should have, correct? That is simply a this is what they project given
0: current staffing levels we will need to be hiring every year not even a projection literally just a flat like only tied to the average incidence of cancer in the american population and so it grew by like 1.5 percent per year out to 2030 that was their anticipation on average 1.5 percent so the workforce survey in 2010 came out with a bunch of different technical documents they came out with an executive summary which is a really excellent um, sort of short digest of what you need to get from this uh, study. They came out with a survey of current physicists, and they did survey current hiring physicists, as well as people who are working in the field, as well as people trying to get into the field. So they they did a pretty good job of capturing all of these different demographics. They also provided uh, model validation uh, information. So just, hey, we looked at the different dropout rates for people in their late stage career. We looked at the different Entry rates, the different ways that people progress through this field, to make sure that we're not overestimating the how the different populations of people. But then, uh, the the one document that I really enjoyed, in addition to the summary one, was the uh, the clinical physicists supply and demand document, which I recommend. Any double member can go on there. It's on slash pubs surveysasp You can go there and you can look at what they considered when they were building this model and how they came up with the parameters. And they do acknowledge actually to speak to Andrea's point that in 2008, we had the massive stock market crash, the great recession as people call it now. And, um, that the, the market may not have totally rebounded, but they did not, they did not account for that in their evaluation of supply and demand when they built their model.
3: So so effectively, this is not a measure of how much we think there should be demand for. No. We are likely stretching ourselves too thin as a field because we're continuing to operate on recession-level physics staff.
1: Well, the other thing, too, is a big thing that was happening then is people weren't retiring. So now all of those people are looking to retire now. I mean, I've seen that personally, where you have groups of people retiring now that maybe had put it off before.
2: I think one more interesting thing about both the timing and also the report, the workforce survey, is that in there they survey current physicists and say, would you be willing to work more hours? And, you know, 2010, 2008, when you're worried about losing your job, of course you're going to say, yes, I'll work more hours. But, you know, most of the clinical physicists I know already work 12 hours a day. Can you really work more hours than that in a sustainable sort of fashion? Maybe I'm wrong about that you work 12
1: hours a day because i really don't think it met ma- i mean i know that all of us have days where we do that but the bottom line is i don't think any normal human being can work that kind of schedule repeatedly and be effective there are some very special people out well, there
0: i i mean i i would be very i would be very cautious on saying that you can't you can't do that
3: Actually, we can take a moment and look at the 2018 salary survey because one of the questions they do ask is average number of hours worked.
0: Hours worked in an average week versus employment sector. They break it down as a distribution, 39 hours or less, 40 to 44, 45 to 49, 50 to 54 or 55 hours or more per week. And they, they break it down private or community hospital, government hospital, med school or university hospital, college or university, and then government non-hospital. So that would be somebody who works at, uh, for example, the NCRP or the NRC or even the IAEA. Let's go international. Why not? They, they have other further breakdowns there as well that are separate, so they're they're non-exclusive from the previous ones, so Medi- Medical Physics Service Group, Medical Group, or Physicians Group, Industrial Commercial Firm, Cancer Center, or Self-Employed Consultant, and while the, the vast majority of them peak in the 40 to 44 hours, with the med school or university hospital peaking between 50 and 54 hours, I mean... College or university, if you work at something that has university in its name or school in its name, you're about thirty percent of people are working fifty-five hours or more per week. Self reported at least, which is questionable in and of itself. But you know, everybody else it's ten percent or less. So so you've got twenty nine percent college or university, twenty percent if you're a med school or a university hospital, with the the more likely outcomes being near the fifty percent for those two categories. So I don't know. I, I would just counter that uh, we we've had a we've had an attending following us who um, she was credentialed in India. Her husband's over here doing a fellowship. She's been following us around um, and just sort of seeing how we do our current GYN brachytherapy or prostate brachytherapy. Particularly, we've adopted interstitial needle use based off some of the GEC Estro recommendations. She talks a little bit about how her clinic operates. And they, I mean, they have some very old cobalt machines. Like we're talking two or one and a half gray per minute to isocenter cobalt sources. And they treat 60 to 70 patients a day. And they are there every day from 7 a.m. to whenever they're done treating, which is 8 p.m. or later. And people do it. I mean, it's not how we're used to thinking of it in America. I don't think that that's our standard of living here, but people do it. And it's easy to lose sight of it. I know in grad school... I was there for quite a long time. Now that I'm not in grad school, I'm not doing that. I'm not signing up to do it, but you know, it's it's something that people do. And when you're when you're pushed, I mean, when you're talking about pushing somebody to take this offer to go and pay, you know, $40,000 extra to go to residency, If there are people who are going to take that offer, I would be willing to bet that there are people who are going to say, okay, well, I'll, I'll work as many hours as I need to work to keep my job or to get a job or to do whatever it is I need to do.
1: I just want to comment real quick, though, that I think it's a little bit different talking about doing something like that as a student or a resident as opposed to a daily working situation. Because when you're a student or a resident, there's an end in sight. You know that you're not going to be working that long forever. When it's an employment situation, especially when the market's good, people aren't going to want to stay in those jobs because no one wants to choose to work 14 hours a day. But that's just my opinion on that.
0: Yeah. No, I, I think
1: it's a dangerous situation asking people to be overworked on a continual basis.
0: A hundred percent agree on that part. A hundred percent agree on that part. But, but I that's do a different think topic. That it's, it's, something, it's something that's going to happen. Yeah. And I think a uh, uh, big thanks to Nick. I think he's offered up our next podcast topic. Medical physics 3.0. We can build it bigger, faster and stronger. So, so Allison, do you have any, uh, any Final thoughts on this uh, this grand tour of residency programs that we started today.
2: Yeah, so I think that we mostly concluded that we could increase the residency slots further, and that really we want APM to reevaluate whether or not we really have met the goal of the field with residency spots.
0: Yeah, yeah, I 100% agree. 100% agree. Another workforce survey not even just a survey but another one of these modeling programs when we have a decent booming economy and we've got brand new technology in place to just see what's going on we've got to we got to get a little bit better on our data collection on the CAMPEP side and differentiate b- between a qmp and a physics assistant, because those are intrinsically on different levels. And beyond that, I mean, just we gotta keep pushing for more residency slots. We gotta, gotta build them up. Hey, quick plug for the double APM and double APM 3.0, it adds a tremendous amount of value. I mean, I'm studying for my part three boards coming up here in about three weeks. And uh, I mean, I downloaded over $1,500 worth of ICRP and NCRP articles for free, all because I pay my, my annual due. So they've, they've definitely gone out of their way to add more value to what the membership gets you. Um, and I've, I've noticed that since I've started being involved in medical physics in 2012. So kudos to you, you guys are You guys are doing a great job. So, you know, I I really hope that uh, you enjoyed listening to us ramble on here about residency programs and issues, all issues, medical physics. We're hoping to bring you a few more episodes in the coming weeks. So stay tuned.
2: You can also check us out on our website, www.hormesispodcast.com.
0: Please go on over to reddit.com slash r slash hormesispodcast. It's a great place for you to interact with us. We're going to be on there, commenting, posting new threads, trying to reach out and touch base with you. So thank you very much for listening. This has been uh, Sean,
2: Allison, Andrea, and
0: Nick. And
2: good night.